0: Our scripture reading this evening comes from Psalm 69. This is God's Word. To the chief musician, set to the lilies, a psalm of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. O God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers. And an alien to my mother's children. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me and I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut its mouth on me. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies, and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink, Let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents, for they persecute the ones you have struck. And talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity. And let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. And not be written with the righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. And will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad. And you who seek God, your hearts shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise His prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise Him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of His servants shall inherit it, and those who love His name shall dwell in it. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Let's turn back to Psalm 69 focusing our attention on verses 1 through 3 save me o god for the waters have come up to my neck i sink in deep mire where there is no standing i have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me i am weary with crying my throat is dry my eyes fail while I wait for my God. As we think upon these words, we, we are drawn immediately to the experience of our Lord Jesus Christ in His suffering and death. Many of us are familiar, we've certainly gone through Psalm 69 uh, not too long ago in our Psalm meditation series. And many of us are familiar with the fact that Psalm 69 is quoted very frequently in the New Testament. In fact, there are more portions of this psalm quoted in the New Testament than any other psalm uh, in the Psalter. So Psalm 110 is quoted more frequently, but it's often a repetition of the same verses being cited over and over again. But in Psalm 69, there are six portions of this psalm that are quoted nine times in the New Testament. So this is a psalm that the apostles would appeal to again and again and again in seeking to unpack and explain and expound the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. This psalm has direct application to Christ. It's a messianic psalm, of course, all the psalms are messianic in a sense, but But this is a psalm that presents to us directly the Lord Jesus Christ recounting for us in the first person His own suffering and His own death. It has direct application to Christ and it's in this sense that the apostles frequently refer to it again and again to speak of Christ, to speak of His character, His sufferings, and and the whole force of His ministry and saving work in the first century. This is a psalm that speaks of messianic suffering. It's a psalm not like Psalm 110 that focuses on the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, but this psalm focuses on His humiliation. It presents to us a suffering Savior. And you can see that in the verses that we just looked at. He's saying that the waters are up to His neck. He says that he's sinking in deep mire, that the floods are overflowing him. Essentially, he's in danger of being drowned. This is a man in distress. A suffering Savior. Uh, His his crying eyes, even his broken heart, uh, are referred to in this psalm. So it presents to us the Lord Jesus Christ in His entire life, In some sense, he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with with grief. His humiliation began at his conception by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and continued up through his burial prior to his resurrection. It speaks of him as uh, having a zeal for God's house, which consumed him. And that is quoted in the New Testament in reference to some of the early things that he did in his ministry, cleansing the temple in John chapter 2. So it does speak of his entire life, but it also emphasizes the climax of his life of suffering at the cross. And you can see the imagery here of someone who's drowning, someone who's being deluged, overflowed, uh, overwhelmed with this sorrow and judgment you can see that imagery playing into the biblical teaching on the gospel you see you think of Christ dying for our sins and what is he doing he's sustaining the wrath of God well that wrath of God is demonstrated in the flood in the days of Noah when God judged and destroyed the earth with floodwaters of judgment so when we see this kind of imagery we're not surprised Jesus is enduring the wrath of God that we can conceive of as as these destructive floodwaters, drowning and destroying everything that lives and breathes on the earth. We think of Pharaoh and the Egyptians being destroyed by those walls of water when God parted the Red Sea for Israel to walk through on dry land, and Moses gets everybody to safety, lifts up the rod, and Down come the walls of water. The floods overflow and drown Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. We can think of Jonah when he was under God's chastisement for running away from his assignment to preach in Nineveh. He takes a ship to Tarshish and he's sleeping down beneath inside the boat. And God sends a storm and it threatens the lives of all the sailors, everybody on board, and eventually... The, the, the storm is calmed only by Jonah being cast into those waters of judgment. And then there's a calm. We think of hell itself, which is presented as a lake of fire. Hell is also presented as a bottomless pit. You see that imagery here in Psalm 69. He's praying that the pit would not enclose itself over him. Hell is presented as a pit. Hell is presented as an abyss which is also a reference at times to the ocean or the sea. So this idea of being overwhelmed with the floodwaters of judgment is not foreign to to our thought process. We're aware of this. This is how God describes His wrath throughout the Scriptures. And so as Jesus is bearing and enduring God's infinite wrath on the cross, this is the imagery that's brought to bear prophetically in Psalm 69. But it's not just our Savior's suffering. We know He suffered in a variety of ways, but here in Psalm 69, the emphasis is on His soul suffering. His soul suffering. Not His bodily suffering. That's the emphasis in Psalm 22 where it says that they pierced His hands and feet, that His throat was parched and dry, and it describes some of the uh, physiological aspects of crucifixion. But here, the emphasis is not on bodily suffering. Of course, there's soul suffering in Psalm 22 as well. But the the emphasis here in Psalm 69 is predominantly about the suffering of his soul, the spiritual suffering, the emotional toll that it took upon our Savior. Uh, We recall in the Gospels that uh, around the time of entering the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said that he was sorrowful unto death. Again, uh, uh, Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised and rejected of men. The soul suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 20, it's abundantly clear. Reproach has broken my heart. When we come to the Lord's table, our thoughts uh, are toward the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and rightly so. But here in Psalm 69 verse 20, we see the broken heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that his heart was broken in the sense that he lost his courage and resolve to complete the work of redemption. We know that ultimately he cried out in victory, it is finished. But we understand what it means to have a broken heart. The the emotional pain and anguish that he was experiencing as, as all of this sorrow is flooding into his heart and mind we know what he means we we, we've understood that ourselves in our own experience it has broken my heart and i am full of heaviness and i looked for someone to take pity because jesus is a real human being he's fully god but he's also fully man and so he was looking for comfort he was looking for someone to sympathize and come alongside him that's how god has created us as human beings And he was abandoned, forsaken, rejected, despised. And it broke his heart. It filled him with heaviness. So we're dealing here with a suffering Savior, and in particular, the soul suffering of the Savior. But we also find, as is often the case in psalms that deal with our Savior's suffering, we also find a triumphant Savior in this psalm. We can see later on toward the middle and end of the psalm, There are references to him crying out for deliverance, to be delivered out of the deep waters. So he's in the deep waters. He's praying that they wouldn't overflow him. Uh, Verse 14, deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. So he's in the deep waters and Jesus himself compared his own death and resurrection to the experience of Jonah, who was in the deep waters. He sank in the deep waters, but he was delivered from the deep waters. He was cast out, vomited out by the great fish onto the beach as a type and shadow of our Lord's resurrection. So Jesus, like Jonah, was taken out of the deep waters. Uh, We can think if our, our thoughts might even turn to Moses, whose name means taken out of the waters. But you can see Christ here out of the deep waters. What is that? It's a reference to the resurrection. Let not the flood waters of death and sorrow uh, overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut its mouth on me. So he's in the pit, he dies, he is, as it were, in the belly of the great fish, he's in the grave. Uh, but but it doesn't close its mouth upon Him as a permanent dwelling place. Death couldn't hold Him. He shoots out at the resurrection and ascends into heaven as our glorified and sovereign King. And you can see uh, His confidence that God is going to do this. And As you go down further in the psalm, verse 29, But I am poor and sorrowful... Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. There's the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to show his confidence he knows it's going to happen, he says, I will praise the name of God with a song. In other words, I will rejoice in this redemption, this work of deliverance from death when God raises His Son from the dead, He says, I'll be worshiping and praising and rejoicing. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. Verse 31, this also shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bull. So He says, the Lord will accept my sacrifice and raise me up. So there's triumph, there's gladness, there's thanksgiving. And we're told that this is to to resound among the people of God verse 32 the humble shall see this and be glad so as we contemplate the Lord's death as we contemplate his soul suffering there's also an element here where we need to take it all in in light of the fact that he didn't just go down into the deep waters but he came up out of the deep waters and he's done it for us and he's given us that deliverance From sin and Satan and the world and death itself. Well, what is the main doctrine of this psalm? What are we going to focus on this evening? It's this that on the cross, Christ descended into a hellish sea of soul suffering for our sins, triumphing over it by faith. On the cross, Christ descended into a hellish sea of soul suffering. For our sins, triumphing over it by faith. The cross. We're familiar with the cross, and we perhaps tend to think of it in terms of physical pain, physical suffering, indescribable physical suffering. Things, you know, the things that happen to us that cause pain are are in most cases nothing compared to crucifixion. And so when we think of the Lord's death, we're thinking about. How they scourged Him with the whip and and ripped apart His flesh. How they put the crown of thorns on His head. How they laid Him out on the cross and nailed His hands and His feet. And hoisted Him up, seeking to really suffocate Him. He would either suffocate or He would wrench Himself, leveraging against the nails in order to breathe, causing suffering one way or the other. And yet, what we find that on the cross... The Lord Jesus Christ quotes from Psalm 22, and the part that he quotes, arguably he quotes from multiple portions, of course, at the end when he says, it is finished, you could say that he's really expounding the end of Psalm 22 where it says that he has done it. Uh, But the only verse in Psalm 22 that he directly cites uh, in an unmistakable way is the first verse. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He could have cited the the part about his hands and feet being nailed. He could have cited the part about people mocking him. And of course, he's referring us to the whole thing, the whole psalm for reference. But the part that he actually quotes, the part that proceeds out of his lips on the cross is in reference not to the physical suffering, but to the soul suffering. That God the Father removed all felt sense of his own presence from the Lord Jesus Christ and, as it were, forsook him on the cross. That is the thing that was most, the, the, the pain that shot through our Savior most powerfully and vividly at the time of his crucifixion. It wasn't the physical, but the spiritual, the soul suffering. On the cross, Christ descended into a hellish sea of soul suffering. Now, when we use the word descended, of course, we think of the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell. He descended into hell. And the larger catechism, uh, which was approved by the Westminster Assembly, takes the position that when it says he descended into hell in the Apostles' Creed, that it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ coming under the power of death. And and, and He died, His soul went to heaven, His body went into the grave, so He's in a disembodied state. He's in the grave until His resurrection when body and soul are reunited. So He's under the power of death and under the power of the grave. And they take that to be the meaning of He descended into hell. But the Heidelberg Catechism in the Dutch Reformed tradition takes a different position. The Heidelberg says that when it says he descended into hell in the Apostles' Creed, that it refers to his hellish sufferings on the cross. Now this is really an intramural debate among Reformed Christians. Uh, Both interpretations are true theologically. The Apostles' Creed isn't inspired, so it's not crucial that we understand exactly what it means. Uh, I think it's likely that the Westminster Larger Catechism is thinking of Psalm 16 in in terms of uh, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption or allow his soul to remain in the grave or his life to remain in the grave. And so they're thinking of Psalm 16. But in, in the Dutch Reformed Heidelberg Catechism, it's likely that they're thinking of something similar to Psalm 69. Because certainly we can say that a fitting summary of this psalm in terms of the Lord's soul suffering would be He descended into hell. He descended into a sea of hellish suffering. A sea of hellish suffering. What's described here corresponds to hell. The suffering He experienced in His soul is in many respects what people are experiencing right now who have died and gone to hell. Their bodies in the grave, their torments in hell as we speak are not physical, they don't have bodies, but it is a soul suffering that they're experiencing. And the Lord Jesus Christ in His human soul descended into that sea of soul suffering. that that we can describe as hell itself on the cross. Jesus descended, think of His communion with God in His soul, up to that point throughout His life. He was in communion with God more intimately than anyone who had ever walked the face of the earth. His prayer life was perfect. His practice of the presence of God was perfect. Perfect the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily. So you have human nature united to the second person of the Trinity, united to the divine nature. So his spiritual joy, his spiritual life, his communion with God was at a maximum. The highest of heights. And he descends to the lowest of lows. No one had more to lose. And we can say even people that go to hell as we speak, nobody has more to lose than the Lord Jesus Christ in going to hell. Sinners who go to hell in our day and age or throughout the, throughout the ages, sinners that go to hell are, already have hell in their soul. They're already alienated from God. They're already lacking. Most of the things that that Jesus was denied and deprived of and, and was missing in a sense when he descended into this hellish sea of agony in his soul. So he had the most to lose. And he, he lost that felt sense. It was at least from a uh, an experiential sense an Ichabod for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the glory, the, the sense of God's glorious presence Departed, and he was, as it were, in darkness. He descended, and he descended into a hellish sea of soul suffering. It's described for us throughout this psalm. First, weariness. Weariness. Look with me at uh, the opening verses here, verse 3 especially. I am weary. Now, we're familiar with. The, the words, I am. When we, we see that those words in connection with the Lord Jesus Christ, we think of I am that I am. We think of the infinitely ever-blessed God, the Son who is perfect, who is sovereign, who is supreme, who is transcendent. I am that I am. The eternal, infinite God. And yet here, we see this combined with, with a word that seems totally out of place. Shocking, surprising. I am weary. I am weary. We know from Isaiah 40 that the divine nature of which Christ was fully uh, possessed of, as the second person of the Trinity, in His divine nature, He neither slumbers nor sleeps. Uh, He's not weary. He, He doesn't need a rest. He doesn't need to recuperate. He neither faints nor is weary. And yet, in His humanity, He says, I am weary. You think of the Lord Jesus Christ with the woman at the well. After a long day of travel, He's sitting there with the hot sun scorching Him outside of the city in Samaria. And the Lord Jesus Christ is tired. He's tuckered out. He's weary. And He sits by the well desiring and thirsting for water. Uh, We we think of the Lord Jesus on the cross or on His way to the cross. Matthew 27, 32. The other Gospel accounts tell us that Jesus had to bear His own cross. But here we find that as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear the Lord's cross. And so it, it seems quite evident. Obviously, we don't know 100% for sure, but it seems evident that at a certain point, Jesus in carrying the cross was physically unable to get the cross to Golgotha. That perhaps He stumbled, He fell, the cross fell to the ground, and they found this man Simon of Cyrene, and they had him carry the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it illustrates the human frailty and weakness of the Lord Jesus And you can see this throughout Psalm 22. His weariness. Psalm 22 and verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. He is weary. But here we find in Psalm 69, verse 3, a soul weariness, a mental weariness, an emotional fatigue. Because we're told that He says, I'm weary with crying. Jesus is going through so much agony, having been forsaken by His Heavenly Father, uh, having been rejected and despised by all of His friends and family, His countrymen among the Jews, Having been betrayed by his friend, his disciple Judas, all his other disciples flee him for the most part. John is near the cross, but basically they all leave him high and dry. And here's the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is weary with crying, the the sorrow, the anguish, uh, the the not despair, but close to it. His heart is broken, and it's just. The mental, diff, you know, trying to process all of this at once—it's a heavy burden, and it weighs on him, and he—he's overwhelmed. He can't even hardly cry anymore. He's just weary. And perhaps you've found yourself in that situation before, where you're so overwhelmed with grief, you've been crying and crying to the point where there are no tears left in the tank. You've dehydrated yourself. There's nothing left, and, and he's weary with his crying. We also see the, the intense sadness uh, just compounding this. The, the intense sadness w- which is a mark of hell. Hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus isn't gnashing His teeth, but, but He is weeping. He's tired. He's sad. He's overwhelmed. Verse 29, But I am poor and sorrowful so he's weary physically he's weary emotionally he's sad he's sorrowful he's acquainted with grief and again his heart is broken under the heavy load of these things and part of the issue is the relentless opposition what is it that broke his heart reproach reproach jesus has been opposed relentlessly throughout his ministry But now he's at a point where all of his friends, all of his allies have deserted him and he is targeted by all of his foes unjustly, unfairly. They hate him without a cause. They oppose him without a good reason. Relentless opposition. Verse 4, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me. Being my enemies wrongfully, you know how taxing it can be when you feel like you're being targeted. You feel like everybody's against me. And, and, and that's what Jesus is experiencing. The people surrounding the cross are all the people that have been attacking Him throughout His ministry. And here they are to get a good glimpse of His shame and of His suffering. And they're mocking Him. And they're wagging their heads at Him. And perhaps they're, they're casting objects at Him. But certainly they're casting reproach He saved others. He can't save Himself. If He's the Christ of God, if He's the Son of God, He needs to come down from the cross. But He doesn't do it. And so He's a fraud. They're mocking Him. They're relentlessly opposing Him. Verse 9, why are they opposing Him? Because of His godliness. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So he's had a zeal for the glory of God. He didn't want people cashing in on the worship at the temple. He didn't want the, the priests and the people running the, 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 the dog and pony show in the court of the Gentiles, he didn't want them to continue to mock God, to profane God's holy place and take advantage of God's worshipers so he confronted them. Zeal for God's house, God's glory, God's worship, God's holiness, God's law. And because of that, they reproached him. Uh, they hated him. Uh, you can see they, they hated him. Verse uh, verse 10, when I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. So he's living a godly life. He's denying himself. He's living uh, in, in a, a constant state of focus and reverence for God and fasting and praying and, and, and so on and so forth. And they reject him, they reproach him, they mock him. Verse 11, I also made sackcloth my garment, I became a byword to them. And so he became as he is today, a, a byword, a slang term, to the point where from from the, the top to the bottom, from the greatest to the least throughout society, he has come to be rejected and ridiculed. Those who sit in the gate, so the, the The Sanhedrin, the elders, the rulers, they speak against me. And I am the song of the drunkards. So nobody's taking him seriously, and if they are, they're they're seriously opposing him. Relentless opposition. Guilt. Now that may seem striking to us and surprising, but of course the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross was saddled with all of our guilt as his people. All of our sin as believers was imputed to the Savior who died on the cross to take our sins away. And so you see in verse 4 at the end, uh, though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. So He, as we'll see in a moment, He's being punished. But there's, there's a guilt that's placed upon Him. He hasn't actually stolen. He hasn't actually sinned. And yet, The sins of His people are imputed to Him such that He must account for these things. He must uh, be reckoned as the thief, reckoned as the sinner, and pay the price. Uh, Verse 5, O God, You know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from You. This is all of Your sin and Your foolishness, dear believer, imputed to Christ. He senses it. He, he doesn't feel it in his conscience as something he's done wrong, but it's his sin. He's bearing it. He's carrying it. He's suffering for it. He didn't steal, but he suffers as a thief and as a robber, as a criminal. He's numbered among the transgressors. And all of our foolishness, as we think about coming to the Lord's table, we examine foolish things we've said and done that we have to confess as sin foolish decisions and priorities in our lives where the consequences are long gone and we can't go back and fix it. And we're humbled and we feel the guilt. Jesus took that guilt. He died for that guilt. He suffered for that guilt. My sins are not hidden from you. Jesus does not hesitate to claim your sins, dear believer, as His own sins by way of paying for them. And if it's the case that he's not ashamed to claim your sins as his own sins in dying for them on the cross, what excuse do we have in not claiming and admitting our own sin? Right? If Jesus is willing to call my sin, meaning me, my if he's willing to call my sin his sin, how much more should I be willing to call my sin my own sin? But he takes that sin, he takes that guilt upon himself. And there's punishment, as I said. He has to restore it. Adam and Eve stole fruit from the forbidden tree. Uh, And ever since, we've been stealing God's air, stealing God's resources, stealing God's earth, using it for our own purposes. God gives us a body. God gives us eyes. We, We commandeer these eyes, these body parts. We commandeer the mind that God's given us. We take what God has given us for good, to love Him, and serve Him, and to be a blessing to others, and we steal it. We use it for the wrong thing. If your employer gave you a company vehicle and instructed you, here's what you're to do with this vehicle, and here's what you're not to do with it, and you took that vehicle on a road trip to California, you're essentially stealing it. You're using it for something you shouldn't be using it for. It's not authorized for that. But that's what we've done with our souls, with our bodies, with our resources, with our relationships, with our time, with our money. We've used these things not in subjection to Him, out of love for Him supremely and for the good of others, but we have used them for ourselves. We've stolen, in some sense, every blessing we've ever had to the extent that we haven't used it for the glory of God. And yet, He must restore it. He paid the penalty and price for all of those thefts, all of those sins that we have committed. And and it says in 2 Corinthians 5 that He became sin for us that we in Him might become the righteousness of God. So it, it, it was an intimate sin bearing. The one who hates sin more than anyone who ever walked the face of the earth, right? Um, you know, the, there are people that hate Brussels sprouts, and if you were to feed them Brussels sprouts, that would be an intense uh, uh, agony for them in, in some sense, right? They hate Brussels sprouts. But if you, if you find someone who likes Brussels sprouts, it's not really a big problem, because they don't mind Brussels sprouts. You see, when Christ is clothed with our sin when it's imputed to him when he's bearing it when he becomes sin on our behalf okay there's a there's an added element of suffering here in that we can tolerate sin oftentimes we put up with sin in our lives we we have sin remaining in us okay so so we have this relationship with sin we need to put that to death but we're often quite comfortable with sin, We tolerate it far more than we should. But Jesus is 100% intolerant of sin. He hates it. it it's, he hates nothing more than sin. And He bore our sin and became sin for us. There, there's just such an infinite agony. We can't even describe it there. So He has the guilt. He has the punishment. Uh, and His soul suffering includes devastating alienation and abandonment devastating alienation and abandonment. And that that has to do with, with God's judgment upon him. It has to do with his relationship to others as well. Let's Let's think of the alienation he experienced from other people. Verse 8, I've become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. These are people that he ate with, he drank with, he spent time with, many of them. They came to hear Him. Perhaps people that He had healed or people that had received bread that He multiplied. This is a feast of all of the Jews from from all of uh, Palestine and even throughout the whole world would have come to the Passover that that set the context for the death of Christ. And so He's surrounded by those that that He came to, to, to reveal the message of salvation to. He came to His own. And they received Him not. They despised Him. They rejected Him. They treated Him like He was an alien. Like He was a foreigner. You're not one of us. We don't want to be around You. We're not even going to look at You. One from whom men hide their faces. Isaiah 53. He's rejected. He's canceled. He's canceled. And despised. And cast out. Verse 20, reproach. That reproach from other people has broken my heart. No one takes pity. No one stands there to comfort Him. He's all alone. And even more so, uh, the judgment and wrath of God who turns away as it were His face, the light of His countenance from the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 3. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. This is the one who had perfect communion and intimacy with God. And he's saying, I'm waiting for God. It's as if in my own experience, God is a million miles away. He's taken away that sense of His close proximity toward me and I'm waiting for Him to return. I know He will. I know that light of His countenance will return and I'll be raised from the dead. But I'm waiting. My eyes fail. How easily we can be content to live without the light of God's countenance. But for Jesus, this is the thing that's first and foremost. When we're backsliding, often we couldn't uh, give a care in the world about the fact that we don't feel close to God. But for Jesus on the cross, this is what He's thinking about. And His eyes are failing as He's waiting for the, the return of the joy of the Lord, which is His strength. Uh, You can see this as well. Verse 17, do not hide your face from your servant. Uh, That's the, you know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul. What does that assume? He senses that God is far away. He knows by faith God is listening to him, but in his experience, he just can't Feel that and so he's saying, Lord, draw near to me. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever desired in in preparing for the Lord's table, in coming to the Lord's table, that the, the joy of salvation, that the sense of God's love and His presence and His power would return, that He would draw near to you? Jesus is dealing with that same phenomenon in some sense. He who was rich in all of these things became poor and needy and and experience this deprivation which goes beyond our comprehension and he did it for our sins he suffered because we sinned we need to think about that if if somebody let's say just imagine that you were reckless in driving your car perhaps you've even had something to drink however you want to put it, but you were reckless with your car and you killed someone's firstborn son. How how difficult would it be to deal with that reality? My friends, when we come to the Lord's table, when we think of the death of Christ, we need to be humbled and realize, okay, it's our sin that nailed God's only begotten Son to the cross of Calvary. It is our sin. We stole it he had to restore it he had to pay the price he suffered because we sinned and yet in all of this he triumphed by faith you can see that uh, verse 13 uh, my as for me my prayer is to you lord in the acceptable time o god in the multitude of your mercy hear me in the truth of your salvation verse 16 Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Jesus is is in the midst of a, a sea, an ocean of hell itself in his soul. And by faith, he knows the mercy of God. He knows it, he doesn't feel it, but he confesses it. He prays on the basis of it. My friends, how do we fight through and triumph by faith over our own soul sufferings, over our own soul deprivation? We do it even as the author and finisher of our faith did it. Despising the shame with the joy set before us, we believe, yes, God is merciful. I don't feel forgiven, but God is merciful. God has forgiven me. God has atoned for my sin in Christ. God loves me. God is my Father, I'm His child. The Lord Jesus here reminds Himself, speaks to Himself, and in His prayers to God, He's constantly going back to God's mercy, God's faithfulness, God's loving kindness. He triumphed by faith. Well, how do we apply this? Just uh, a few things before we're finished. How do we apply these things. First, and I already mentioned this, but I'll say it in passing be humble. As we prepare for the Lord's table, we cannot come with an ounce of pride. And if we have pride, let's humble ourselves for that and confess that. There's no room for boasting. God gives grace to the humble, but He opposes the proud. We need to recall, as I mentioned, that we sinned, we stole, He suffered, He repaid. Verse 32 tells us who's going to see this and experience the joy of salvation. The humble shall see this and be glad. So, don't don't rack yourself and and, uh, overwhelm yourself with the contemplation of sin for its own sake. But let that sin that you're contemplating, that you're confessing, that you're evaluating and examining, let the sins that that come into your mind as you're preparing for the Lord's Supper. Let those sins humble you and bring you low because that's where God is pleased to dwell. And that's the sacrifice and the offering that He will not despise. Secondly, be amazed. Be amazed. Jesus Christ descended into a sea of hellish fury and soul suffering and He triumphed. There is nothing in this world, there's no grief, there's no sorrow, there's nothing uh, that, that ought to be able to penetrate our hearts of faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's conquered it all. We need to be amazed at His power and His might on our behalf, at this great work that He's done. He's drank hell to the dregs and that despair is gone. Forever. For every believer. Psalm 93, 3 and 4. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. Than the mighty waves of the sea. God heard His prayer. He raised Him on high. And guess what He's also done? For every believer in this life right now, you are seated with Him in heavenly places. He triumphed over the floods. He went down into the pit. He was submerged in the soul suffering of hell itself. And He arose out of it. The floods lifted up their voice against Him, but He showed Himself mightier and is now seated as your mediator and representative at God's right hand. And you're seated with Him in heavenly places. And so as you encounter grief and sorrow and discouragement, set your eyes not on earthly things, but on heavenly things at God's right hand where Christ Himself is seated. Where your life is hidden with God, with Christ in God. So be amazed, marvel at His great victory. Enjoy it. Uh, Be triumphant in it. That nothing can now separate you from that love of God in Christ Jesus. Which is the thing that gives us victory over sorrow, over grief, over discouragement, over despair. Looking at His victory and joining with Him by faith in it. Also, be grateful. We should not be complainers as Christians. The Lord has saved us from hell. He saved us from utter despair and grief. His yoke... His burden was an infinite weight of God's wrath and fury and sorrow and pain. But our burden is light and our yoke is easy. Whatever happens in our lives, we ought never to complain. Uh, As Joel Beakey once said, I think he was instructing a young person, not in hell and still complaining. My friends, think of what Jesus endured in Psalm 69. If you ever get tempted... To complain, to get critical, to be upset with your circumstances, whatever they may be. Go back to Psalm 69 and you'll find that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. No reason to complain. We come to the Lord's table lifting up the cup of salvation with great thanksgiving. Setting our eyes on on the things above. Be comforted. Your sympathetic high priest understands. He understands. You can come to Him. He knows exactly. If you feel despised, rejected, you're overwhelmed, you you have just these, these weights that bear down upon you, you can't get these things off your mind, He understands. Come to Him in prayer. Psalm 69 is basically a long list of Jesus describing His situation to the Father. That's a way that we need to be praying. Some of us that struggle to spend time in prayer, I wonder if we even realize we're allowed to do that in prayer. Where in our prayers, we come to the Lord and we just go down a long list of all the bad things that are weighing us down. And we just tell him this and the next thing and the next thing. Read again Psalm 69. Look through it. Jesus, in great detail, is describing all of the circumstances of his own pain and suffering and frustration. He's describing all of it in detail to His Father. God wants to hear how you're feeling. He wants to hear what you're going through. And in the midst of that, Jesus is asking for help, and He's asking in faith. But don't forget to tell God how you're feeling. There are times when you shouldn't tell other people about it. You should go directly to God. Because He understands. And your sympathetic high priest understands in a way that other people don't. Well, my friends, there's much for us to think about here. As we contemplate the Lord's Supper, as we prepare our hearts to come, let us not forget the death that Jesus died and the fact that it is now finished. There is not a drop of, uh, of that wrath of God. There's not a drop of that soul suffering that has not been drank to the dregs by the Lord Jesus Christ. He has consumed it. He has satisfied it such that whatever difficulties you're facing, whatever sorrows you're facing, whatever infirmities, weaknesses, difficulties, discouragements that you're facing, God is working these things out for good. He's sanctifying you, teaching you patience, conforming you to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, and preparing you through suffering for eternal glory. Let's pray lord god we pray that you would write upon our hearts and minds the reality of our savior's death that we would be thinking upon his suffering even upon his soul suffering that we stole and he restored we sinned and he suffered and that for his sake we are now set forth as your children We are now accepted in your sight with infinite love and grace and provision and protection. We ask, O Lord, that you would turn our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ who saves his people from their sins. We ask in his name. Amen.